as touching things offered to idols. We know that we have knowledge, all of us have knowledge, but knowledge puffeth up, but love edifieth. If any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet, as he ought to know. If any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one, although there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as many be gods and lords many. But to us, to us believers, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol under this hour, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we be if we eat not, are we the worse? Then he goes on to say, But take heed, brother, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Bible Study. Our teacher, Dr. John G. Mitchell, was faithful in teaching the Word of God for more than 60 years throughout the Northwest. Our name, the Unchanging Word, reflects the fact that the eternal Word of God is never changed and never will. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Life begins at Calvary, there my Savior died. He took my place and by His grace came with me to abide. All I need for living is mine by just believing. Life begins at Calvary, life that never Christ our Mediator died, and those who now have a relationship to God also have a conscience before God. But not everyone has the same conscience. There may still be mental baggage left over from a former lifestyle, so what are we to do? In 1 Corinthians chapter 8-10, through 10, Paul now answers a third question concerning things sacrificed to idols. He states that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And if anyone loves God, he is known by him. So, how does love affect the brethren in the church, especially when it comes to doubtful activities? Well, here's Dr. Mitchell. Thank you. Good day, friends. We again come to you. And as you well know, the great joy of my heart is to bring the Word of God to you. I trust in the power and blessing of the Spirit of God so that we will not only enjoy fellowship together in the study of His Word, but we will magnify our precious Savior in all that we are and in all that we do. Now, you remember we have been dealing with instructions by the Apostle Paul to the people, to the people of God in Corinth. And unless you see this, you're not going to get the, uh, the reason why Paul is speaking so definitely concerning these relationships. For example, in, in, chapter, in chapter 7, we had the the relationship in the family between husbands and wives and so on, the great desire of Paul that we should be all in all out for God. In chapter 8, we have the question of our relationship and responsibilities to, in the church to our brethren. And when you come to chapter 9, we have where the Apostle Paul gives his own life as a testimony 
of the thing he's been teaching, that he's willing to put to one side his personal liberties for the glory of God and for the edification of his people. When you come to chapter 10, you have the witness from, from Old Testament history concerning Israel. But we must remember that when you come to the book of Corinthians, he's talking to a people who have come out of idolatry and moral corruption. The very philosophy of the city was that you made a certain way and let no one interfere with your liberty, which you have. You can do anything you want to. With the result, that immorality was a common thing. It wasn't even looked upon as sinful. Fornication, adultery, immorality of any kind. In fact, they had this in their temple worship. When they had girls, virgins would, be, would become uh, part of the worship of the church at Corinth, I mean of the temples in Corinth. He had the same thing, of course, in Ephesus, but so much at Corinth. In fact, to be called a Corinthian was a dirty word, you see. And so they had opposition, they had persecution of all kinds. And the great thing was to, because of their background, because of the, of the society in which they lived, it was so easy to slip back into these terrible sins. So when you come to chapter 7, he's dealing with the question of relationship, which we were taking up in our last couple of lessons, our relationship between the husband and the wife, you remember? And I gave you Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, of how the man is the, is the head of the house, that is, he has the place of responsibility before God for his family, and the wife has the place of honor. And, of course, love is manifested by sacrifice. Then Paul had a word to say to the unmarried, how he des desired that they would, because of the persecution, because of the conditions under which they lived, and because the time was short, martyrdom could easily be the experience of these Corinthian Christians. Because of the condition of things, because of the times, Paul advises that they should remain single. Yet remember, you have that in verse 26 of chapter 7, because of the present distress. In verse 28, I, I don't want you to have trouble in the flesh. So when your man is single and persecution comes, possible martyrdom, he's, he's not held back because of, of responsibilities to a wife and family. Now, this is what Paul's desire was. That's his desire for the unmarried. It's because of the present distress. Paul is not opposed to marriage. Don't misunderstand me. And then you have the bond of marriage, verses 10 to 11. Then we have the action of grace in contrast to the law. Under the law, a Jew would never be allowed to marry a Gentile. If you go back to Ezra chapters 9 and 10, you have where this is so clearly revealed. And when you come to chapter uh, 7 of the book of Corinthians, don't, don't, don't put away your unsaved wife. Don't put away your unsaved husband. Stay together for the children's sake. And that the unsaved one, who knows, says Paul, or wife, you might save your husband. Who knows, or husband, you might save your wife. And what about the kiddies? You see how he's appealing. Then he, and he goes on through the chapter to each one to abide in their own calling. In other words, the great desire of Paul was that they might be freed from distractions in order to serve the Lord. Why? Because of the persecution, 
He wanted to spare them tribulation, and he wanted them to be single for Christ's sake. And by the way, you remember our Lord spoke of that in Matthew 19. Now we come to chapter 8. When we come to chapter 8 of Corinthians, here you have the limitations of Christian liberty. And here you have it in the church. Now I would like to read, first of all, the first three or four verses, first three verses at least. Now remember, he's now dealing with our relationship to our brethren in the church. And the great thing that's been brought up is the question of meats. I take it, I take it from what Paul says. He's answering a question. Down there at Corinth, some of these Christians, uh, with their knowledge, you remember, there's only one God. Idols are nothing. Altars are nothing. Sacrifices are nothing. Only one God. So with this knowledge, they would go down buy meat off the, on the market, meat that had been offered to idols. As far as they were concerned, it made no difference what kind of meat it was, where it had come from. To them, it was just meat. On the other hand, there were other believers. And when they saw that meat which had been offered to idols, they felt they couldn't eat that meat because to them, it meant fellowshipping with the idols to whom this meat had been offered. So you see the, the, the little bit of a, of, a, of a problem there in the Corinthian church. So Paul writes this, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we have knowledge, all of us have knowledge, but knowledge puffeth up, but love edifieth. If any man think he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet, as he ought to know. If any man love God, the same is known of him. Now, he's just dealing here with a very simple thing. Knowledge puffeth up. You see, knowledge without love leads to pride, and it leads to trouble. See. But love always edifies. Love is the principle of action among the brethren. I want to press this because I'm living in a day where we see so much of this. In fact, we see so much of intellectualism without love. And I could speak to that point very, very frankly. Even among evangelical believers, it's so easy to be puffed up with knowledge, even knowledge of the Scripture, knowledge of true doctrine, whatever it may be, if it's not coupled with love in our relationship to each other, it becomes a thing whereby we're proud. In fact, in some, some become very arrogant about it. If there's no love, you destroy your brother. I say that. Love edifies. On what ground? Now we come to verses 4 to 8. As cunning, therefore, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as many be gods and lords many, but to us, to us believers, there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. How be it there is not in every man that knowledge? For some with conscience of the idol under this hour, eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we be if we eat not are we the worse. Then he goes on to say, But take heed, brother, 
lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Let me just stop here now. Verses 4 to 8 is very simple. There's only one God to us Christians. We have all have this knowledge. The heathen have many gods, which are no gods. Eyes they have and can't see. You remember, ears they have and can't hear, and tongues they have and they can't speak. There's no life. There's no deity there. And they claim to have many intermediaries, demons. You take any, any idolatrous system. It's always covered with demons. Now, we're here in America. I know very little about that. You go to some of these uh, countries in Southeast Asia, for example, where demonism is very, is very clear. South America, demonism is very, very, very open and above board. No question about that. And they use demons as intermediaries. I remember talking to a missionary one time from Africa, and he said that the, the, where he worked, the people believed there was one real God, the creator of all things. And he's a good God, they said. But there's also a devil, there's also a bad God. And we have to appease the demons of the bad God. So their life is made up trying to appease demons. Yeah, the same thing over here in, in Corinth. They had idols, they're worshiping demons, and they offered sacrifice. Now he said, we know, we Christians know, that there's only one God. There's only one Lord. And we don't have any angels or intermediaries between us. By the way, I may quote from 1 Timothy 2, 5, where Paul writes, Well, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You remember that passage? The verse 4 says, God wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. How glad I am for that. Now he goes on to say, verse 7 and 8. Now we come down to the crux of it. However, there's not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol, unto this hour, eat as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat commandeth us not to God. Now you see there, I come back to the issue. Some in the Corinthian church, as far as they were concerned, it was just meat. It made no difference whether it was offered to an idol or not. Meat is just meat. So they were boasting about their knowledge. Now the other man, he's been brought out of idolatry, and he goes down to the market, and he could buy meat from the, from the temple. It was cheaper than buying the other meat. And like you and me, you know, we want a bargain. But he had a conscience. If I eat this, if I take this meat home, it means I'm having association and relationship with the idol to which this meat has been offered. His conscience was stirred on this thing. Now, what's, what's my responsibility? So you have in verses 9 to 13, love cares for the weaker brother. Now, remember, knowledge puffeth up, but love always edifies. Listen to what he says. Take heed then, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man say thee which hast knowledge, sit at the meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idol? 
and through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. When we sin against the brethren, we wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Boy, what a statement. Therefore, therefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. What Paul has taken up here is, let us not do anything, whether it's eating or whether it's drinking or whatever it is, let us never do anything that will cause another Christian to stumble. Now, here's a principle. If I eat meat, offend my brother, says, Paul, I'll never eat meat as long as this world standeth. Allow me to read to you from the book of Romans, chapter 14. I think possibly this, where Paul spends a, a whole chapter on this. I'll just pick up two or three words. Chapter 14 of Romans. Allow me to just do one or two things here. Him that is weak in the faith receive, but not with doubtful disputations. One believeth he can eat all things. Another is weak, and he eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not. And let not him which eateth not judge him that eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Yea, he shall be held up, for God is able to make him to stand. Now you go down to verse 10. And why do you judge your brother? Why do you set it naught, your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 12, so then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Let us not therefore judge one another any more, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Go on down to verse 19. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify another. For meat destroy not the work of God. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for that man who eateth with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh or to drink wine, nor to do anything whereby your brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. If you've got faith, have it to yourself. Now, it's very, to my mind, it's very, very clear. But the thing that I'm after here, of course, is this. I have a tremendous responsibility, just as you have, to your brethren. The main thing for us as Christians, and I speak now one with another, we ought to so live that we edify and strengthen the brother, the weak brother especially. Don't tell me that you love God and that you love his people and yet you boast about your liberty in Christ and forget you who's supposed to love your brother are causing him to stumble. And because your weak brother belongs to Christ just as much as you belong to Christ, just as much as I belong to Christ, when I make my brother to stumble, cause him to stumble and fall, I sin against Christ. For example, I go ahead and do something and thank the Lord. I say, I'm free. My conscience is clear. 
I love the Savior, and this is what I want to do. So I do it. Now over here, there's another brother. He may not have the knowledge you have. He may not be strong like you are. But he says, when he sees you do this very thing, whatever it is, huh, if he can do it, he's a very strong Christian. Why, he's a preacher, or he's a deacon, or he's an elder. He's a Sunday school teacher. If he can do it, I can. But he's not doing it in faith. You may be doing that in faith. I can, I can, I can do this. Free to do it. Doesn't affect my relationship with the Lord or my fellowship with God. I can do it. I have knowledge. In this particular case in Corinthians 8, to me it's just a piece of meat. I don't care whether it's being offered to an idol or not. Idol is not a God anyhow. He's just a piece of stone. To me it's just meat. And you do it freedom with liberty. But what about your brother? To him, it's being offered to an idol. To him, he feels if he eats that meat, he's associated himself with the idol to which the meat had been offered. And you cause your brother to stumble and you sin against Christ. May I add a little wee verse there? In Galatians chapter 6, the first verse I read, If a brother be overtaken in a fault, you that are spiritual, restore him in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. There's going to be a time when you will fail God, and your weaker brother whom you've helped is going to come and help you. If you claim to be spiritual, restore him. Don't take a baseball club and beat him on the head. Laugh at him and knock him down. No. Restore him in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest thou also be tempted. So I read here, Through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Verse 12. And when you sow sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, now you have his final word, therefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to a friend. And Paul carries the same principle right down into chapter 9. All things are lawful. All things are not expedient. No man lives to himself, says Romans 14. No man dies to himself. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. But I have a tremendous responsibility to my brother. Am I willing? Do I love the Savior enough that I'd be willing to give up good things, good things, if those good things affect my brother? In other words, I have a tremendous responsibility to my brother. And dear Christian friends, I want to say this, if ever there was a need for such a thing, it's today. How easy it is for Christians to gloat or gloat over another Christian or be proud to do this or do that. Say, well, I'm under the grace of God. I'm free. I can do what I want to do. Yes, well, my friend, you lost all your rights when you accepted the Savior. And what you should do now is to please God. Your life that's absolutely given over to God so that your life will be a benediction to others. Instead of being a critic, you'll be a lover. 
knowledge puffeth up, love edifies. And I, I, I'm tempted very much right here to, to quote from, from 1 Corinthians 13. You know what it is? From verses 48, love suffereth long and is still kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Love never behaves itself unsamely. Love never seeks its own, is never easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoices in the truth, never rejoices in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things. Love never fails. Oh, friend, God grant that you and I were so in love with the Savior that whenever we find a Christian, whatever condition he's in, we'll manifest love and patience and understanding and seek to draw that believer, weak though he may be, stumbling though he may be, stumbling all over the place, to bring him into the presence of the Savior. And through him, God be glorified, your own heart filled with joy, and him full of peace and blessing. And may the Lord bless you wonderfully today for his precious name's sake. When I think of Jesus dying on the cross for me, thine Lord would I be, freely giving up his life from sin to set me free. Thine Lord would I be. Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Bible Study today. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word Bible Broadcast. Life begins at Calvary.